Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast presented by Nenny and Associates. I'm your host, Jim Schaefer. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, Nenny and Associates is an executive search firm focused on the building efficiency industry. Hence why we named the podcast the way that we did. And simply put, we help our clients find the right talent. Each week, we sit down with leaders from the industry to discuss their backgrounds, how they got started, and where they see the industry heading. We also get to know our guests and find out what drives them to be successful. And on today's episode, episode 63, we sit down with Timothy Unruh, who is the executive director of NAESCO, or the National Association of Energy Service Companies. And we discuss at the beginning, this is our second time having Tim on. And if you recall, he first appeared on episode six when we were first launching this podcast. So we thought it would be relevant to have Tim on at this point to discuss what's going on at NAESCO, what he's seeing, and some of the new membership numbers that he started to experience there within the organization and also really enjoyed the the robust discussion that we had around the industry as a whole, especially as it relates to the different funding that's available for the K-12 market as well as state and local entities. And we also touch on some of the employment trends that he's seeing in the industry as well, especially as it relates to how ESCOs are attempting to, to win projects and really put themselves in a position to attract the right talent. And overall, this was just a fun episode. I really enjoyed my time with Tim, and I believe you will as well. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to our channel and consider downloading this episode and future episodes. This is really the only way that we can track how many people are listening. So if you're one of the people out there who are streaming the episodes, I urge you to consider hitting that download button instead. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please share it and leave a five-star review. Uh, we think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Tim and I. So let's drop in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Timothy Unruh, who is the Executive Director of NASCO, the National Association of Energy Services Companies. Timothy, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. I should have said welcome back. Welcome back to the show. Because <laughs> if we have any uh, longtime listeners, you can go back to episode six. Tim was one of our first guests on here. So we were chatting the other day. We thought it'd be relevant to reconnect and do uh, do the update 2.0 episode here. So uh, glad we made this happen. And Jim, what episode will we be on about now? Oh yeah, we've uh, we've made some progress since then. I think this will be when this comes out. This will be like episode sixty-three. Oh my goodness! So it's been oh, it's been fifty or so uh, episodes since you talked to me last. That's that's right. So it was perfect timing. It was perfect timing to yeah. uh, to get you to get you back on here. So so let's do this. So for for the audience that didn't listen to the first episode that we did together and may not. Uh, know you as, as well as we do. Can you maybe just start with an overview of your background and just kind of how you got started in the industry here? Sure. Um, by training, I went to uh, Wichita State University, go Shockers, and uh, was able to come out of there with a PhD in electrical engineering, which I quickly used to secure a, pro a job at an electric utility up in Michigan. And uh, that pretty quickly uh, morphed into a job related to efficiency providing efficiency services to uh, automakers and industrial facilities throughout the state of Michigan, and then uh, expanded that even to uh, industrial facilities throughout the uh, Midwest of the country. I left that uh, uh, utility and then jumped over to an energy service company out of Kansas City. And I spent 12 years 
working for an energy service company, developing energy savings performance contracts for uh, projects, you know, pretty much all over the U.S. We had uh, kind of a hot hopscotch projects all around the country and uh, even a couple of projects in Mexico. And uh, then we went to, uh, I, I left that back in 2010. To, I'm sorry, I left that in, uh, I don't remember what year I left that, <laughs> in 2010. And I went to uh, the federal government and uh, took the uh, job as the program director of the Federal Energy Management Program. So I went from managing projects as the vice president of operations for an ESCO over to the other side, being a client in some ways of overseeing the policy and procedures associated with uh, managing a performance contract on the owner's side. And that was an interesting learning experience. Uh, the the job at Department of Energy was very broad, and I got a lot of experience in many different things in building efficiency, vehicles, uh, and, and just about policy in general. And uh, I spent eight years doing that. Uh, a couple of those years, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Renewable Power. So I got uh, some experience there as well. And then finally, I, I jumped over in 2018 and became the Executive Director of the National Association of Energy Service Companies. So I think I'm completing a full circle now. Started out running an running an ESCO, running projects on an ESCO side, then on an owner's side for a few years, and now I'm over uh, kind of between the two and trying to make sure the industry case keeps on a steady steady path forward. So with uh, with NAESCO, I know again a lot of our listeners and audience members are going to know who NAESCO is. I'm sure we got a lot of members tuning in right now, but. Um, Again, for the folks that don't uh, that don't recognize the acronym or don't know the organization, could you give us just a brief overview of, of who NAESCO is and what the uh, what the mission is here? Well, NAESCO is, as you mentioned earlier, the National Association of Energy Service Companies, and our role is to effectively try to support the industry as a whole. Um, what what we're trying to do is is provide training, uh, provide uh, market awareness. Uh, and then most importantly, we provide an accreditation program to help make sure that the industry operates on a level that is that is conducive to future market development. When we when we look at the, our role, we have, we have webinars, we hold events. Uh, we have a, our national event last uh, uh, November in Austin, Texas. We have about 300 people attend. Uh, we have regional meetings where we have members come in and participate and talk about what the market conditions are in certain areas. And then um, we, we also then uh, uh, work in an advocacy role uh, from lobbying to trying to support different policies that are out. Yeah, you touched on the event in Austin, Texas. I think that's where you and I had a chance to, to sit down for a couple of minutes. And one of my observations was the amount of new members that you guys had and all the different, I think, affiliate, we'll put them in the affiliate category of um, new technology members that you guys had had, new service providers that I thought was more um, more involved than I've seen in years past. And I think I maybe even asked you at the time, like, what do you think's driving the new interest and the new membership that you guys have seen just over the last couple of years? Hey, you know, it's interesting. As we went into pandemic, we had this, this eerie feeling that we would lose members, but instead we gained members uh, in interesting. And I, I think it coincided with an increased awareness of what we were doing. So when, when I came into NAESCO, what we did was is we, I hired a marketing firm to help promote uh, NAESCO, but more so to promote the industry. 
Uh, and sometimes I felt like we were a little bit of a quiet industry, just kind of rumbling along in the background. And I felt like the the role we provided and the ability of our industry to help shape public buildings and the, and what we could expect out of public buildings was was not not being pronounced as well as it could be. And so that was one of the roles we had our marketing firm do was try to get the message out. And so I think that we grew and gained members because the message got out. But I think during the pandemic, companies saw the need for advocacy uh, in various areas because their industries were uncertain. They weren't sure where the future was going. And having some support of a trade association to make sure that they were represented before Congress and before state governments, I think also was important. Yeah, you touched on the, the lobbying aspect. I know Energy savings performance contracting has obviously been around for a long time. So how much education do you need to do at this point with folks in the federal government, with politicians? I'm sure they're aware of it, but are there particular objections that you feel like you have to overcome or educate them on? Like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is maybe you heard something about a performance contract, but this is really what it is. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many ways to look at an answer to that question. Uh, from, from right down in the uh, buildings area, uh, it's interesting that, that when a performance contract is done for a facility, those people that are in that facility, it might be the only one they do in their career because a performance contract can last for 20 years. And so that may be the span of someone's tenure at a facility. And so there's a constant need to retrain people because each time it's often those people's first time doing it. From the, from the policy level, when you talk about statutes, there's a constant retraining that's needed there as well. The, uh, the turnover at the political level is significant in state, regional, uh, local, as well as in federal. And each time someone new comes in, they likely don't have an understanding or background in the energy savings performance contract. It's rare to find someone coming into a position having a full awareness of what performance contracting is, how it works, and, and what they have to do and what support structures are in place to help them make sure it's successful. And so there's a constant retraining that has to occur there. Uh, but the, the uh, training is, is, is different in that we also have uh, what I, I often term as the elusive bad project. So at times, uh, people say, well, you know, we did a performance contract X many years ago, and it didn't go well because someone didn't like how things worked. And often you can't find out when that project occurred. You can't find out what was, what was the place of the project, who, who did the project, what went wrong, and, and why is it a bad project? It's just this, this, this thought that something isn't right. And I'm not sure why we are so susceptible to that. Uh, you know, if we look at the comparable construction industry, we all know that there are construction projects that have problems, but we don't ever hear one of them say, I'm never going to do a construction project again because I had a bad one that didn't work out well. But yet on performance contracts say, you know, I heard of a project a long time ago in a far, far away place. And so we'll never do one of those again. So we have to work to overcome those barriers and help educate people of here's the things we put in place since that happened that help improve the market. Here's the tools and processes. Our industry from say the 80s when it started to today has gone through a whole transformation of policies, procedures, practices, accreditation that didn't exist when we started. And our industry is a far stronger one today than it was back then. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. When you were going through that uh, that example there, I'm just sensing all of like uh, all the salespeople. Anyone listening to this is going to be nodding their head because everyone's faced that from a customer before. Oh, we've tried that before with uh, somebody else. We tried that product or service, and we had a really bad experience. And uh, you know, it's not very often that we translate that to anything else in life. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how that puts up an immediate barrier because you had one bad experience 27 years ago. So I think there's a lot of people that can certainly relate to that. Um, one last thing on the on the membership, I was curious there, and we don't need to talk about any specific companies, but are there like particular technologies that you're seeing? from the affiliate member, like types of companies that you're starting to see come in to the space that maybe you didn't see five or 10 years ago? We see a lot more renewable related uh, affiliate members coming in. And our ESCO members report that there's a lot more renewable uh, energy conservation measures included in their projects. Uh, We're seeing technologies to help address COVID related things. So we're seeing technologies come in of UVC. We're seeing uh, uh, air treatments, filtration type systems. So we're seeing a lot of technologies come in and address the situation at hand. Um, so, so those are the areas that I see us having growth in new technologies, new things. But in general, our membership has gotten broader. We've had some new control technologies come in. Um, we've had some, some treatment abilities of uh, uh, piping come in and duct work that helps us to improve efficiency. So we are seeing some new things come in and broaden the base of our affiliate membership. Uh, and, and even those traditional members, our lighting companies, we're seeing them come in with new technologies uh, supporting the UVC lighting, but also advancing in the LED technology and the fixture technology, uh, really making those LEDs a mainstay for all the future projects. No, that's that's excellent, and it's uh, it's been neat to see the uh, the evolution just from uh, from my vantage point. You know, just going to the show over the years, so it's been uh, it's been really neat. So let's transition to um, kind of the market or the industry as, as a whole. So as you look at, you know, we we don't need to do a deep dive on this, but I guess as you look at like state, local government, K-12 projects, I mean, what's the activity looking like there from your perspective? And what are you seeing right there at call it the, the public level? Well, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, when you look at the state local levels, the first, I guess, is K-12 schools. Um, you know, we, we've been working pretty heavily with a group called the Basic Coalition. Uh, the 21st century schools group, uh, what we call undaunted K through 12. When the when the federal government passed the funds uh, last year, the the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds or ESSER funds, and put about 180 billion dollars into schools, not just facilities, but in schools in general. We got more involved with advocating uh, for how this money was spent, the rules associated with it and so forth. And uh, we got involved in these school groups. And um, we, we've seen we've seen ESCOs have some success getting this money. The money was really burdened with some pretty harsh um, uh, uh, guidance that came out from the Department of Education that made it difficult to access the money in a performance contract. But, but the ESCOs have found ways to make it work. And I've heard of quite a few success stories that ESCOs have been able to get that money applied towards Projects they perform, maybe not in an actual performance contract, but related to a performance contract, still finding success with that. And so um, I think that that money has helped propel a lot of school buildings into doing retrofit work. Uh, We estimated somewhere around 20% of that money might go towards facilities. And so uh, we think that there has been quite a bit happening. 
Then you move up to the next level, and that's the state and local government. There was also funding that went to the state and local governments called the Fiscal Recovery Fund. That money seems to have had less of an impact than the ESSER funds with ESCO projects. There have been some help with that, but not quite as much as we would have hoped. Uh, the Treasury did just uh, last month come out with their final guidance with that. One of the overall problems with all of this money is when federal money flows down, uh, those state and local entities, states and those schools, are always concerned over, over a post-audit of how they spent the money and the potential that it could be clawed back because of a judgment made that they didn't spend the money right. And so uh, ESCOs have really had to work hard with their clients to ensure that they get them comfortable that things are moving forward like they should, that things are happening like they should. So they, they ease that fear of that, that post-audit that comes out. And so, so those two markets, I think, have done fairly well. Certainly, there was a pause when COVID came, but the work that needed to be done continued to need to be done. And so we saw clients moving forward. So I think ESCOs have done fairly well through the pandemic. I've heard some, some companies tell me they're having some of the best years or this year or last year were some of the best years they've had in their company history. Yeah, we've uh, we've heard that as well. Interesting enough, especially if you know, I think one of the topics that still is relevant today, and even you know, last year when COVID really started to to come into play, was indoor air quality. Right? If you were able to position oh, yeah. your services around indoor air quality in a language that the K to twelve school district decision makers, you know, they can then position that to the school board. They can then position that to, to parents and teachers like, hey, this is an indoor air quality improvement project that we're going to do versus an HVAC project, just using the appropriate language, right? Well, you know, what's so fascinating about this is when COVID came out and it became an airborne issue and indoor air quality started to matter, it was, it was a perfect fit for our industry. We've always gone in and improved indoor air quality. You know, energy state performance contracts, and energy efficiency used to have this thought that when you came in and did energy efficiency, it made things worse. You had to be cold when you want to be hot, hot when you want to be cold, and it was going to be dark and gloomy in all the buildings because you had to turn down the lighting. But now when you do an energy efficiency project, we expect the building to be better than it was before. And so we expect the lighting to be better. We expect the temperature to be better controlled, and we expect better indoor air quality. I mean, I know we've all uh, ESCOs have all gone into schools and found outside air uh, intakes blocked. And they're blocked because the system couldn't handle it. They've had frozen pipes. I found them blocked just with debris where they had so many leaves and things coming in. The whole filter was blocked and no outside air was coming in. They were just recirculating internal air. And so all those conditions now have to be repaired. Well, that actually causes an increased energy consumption. So if you come in and do that without a thought to energy efficiency, your energy bills will go through the roof. And so you have to do this in a managed approach. And that's perfect for our industry. That's our expertise. We've been doing it for decades. We're the ones who know how to do this the best. That uh, makes, makes sense. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, let's transition to the, uh, to the federal space. Let's um, you know, look at military bases or anything in the federal space as it relates to UESC or ESPC type contracts. I mean, what are you seeing and hearing there in that segment? Well, I, I'm hearing that there's a there's a diminished demand for federal projects right now that uh, while there are some happening and there are some very large ones happening, the quantity of projects has dropped quite a bit. Um, I, I don't know the full reason behind that, but but I know when I was back in the federal government, I found that the only way you really saw progress was if you had leadership saying, this is important, we want you to do this. And uh, for the past five or so years, we haven't seen that. 
Uh, and it hasn't mattered the administration. Uh, uh, it really just has been not a focus of the federal government towards sustainability. Uh, a new executive order came out here recently um, last year toward the end of the year, and that federal that 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 executive order does have in it some guidelines, but it's very emissions focused and it's very clean energy focused. And so it has a very strong push for clean energy in a short term and a longer term net zero type of approach. And so it's unclear how that will that will drive federal sustainability. But one thing is clear is that while the executive order comes out and demands federal facilities do things, it never comes with funding to accomplish those things. And so private sector funding will be critical to achieve any of the goals outlined in that. And so we'll have to see some, some structure around that to see if we can have success. But until we see some sort of leadership just come down and call agencies to be accountable, we probably won't see that growth. And that's really what we need. Got it. Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on financing in, in general and all the different players that are involved there and the different um, structures that are available for you know public and federal and the different uh, institutions that are involved. And I'm sure yeah. you're seeing that too at, at NASCO members, right? At least. You, you know, Jim, there's a whole misconception around financing uh, and the guarantee that that longer term piece of our contract, uh, there, there are some clients that think that they have to pay a fee for the guarantee. And typically, the guarantee is part of an integrated project. There's no specific fee for a guarantee. Uh, there's misconception over the interest rates paid on our project that maybe they're exorbitant or out of market class, uh, which is not right. And there's also some question over, over what clients are financeable. As we look towards some future money coming out from the Department of Energy, there's been question over whether small rural school districts, for example, are even financeable in the projects. And what it turns out is, is the size of the school district is less important to how much credibility they have in their finances. And so it's, it's very interesting, all the misconceptions we have to overcome related to technical, but also in financial and project management. So maybe that'll be part three, maybe 60 more episodes later on down the road. We'll bring you back on. We'll talk just about financing and see what we can untangle. But, um, but until then, I know um, what we wanted to cover on here, what I was especially curious about was the uh, just employment trends that you're seeing from ESCOs, right? And I think as every company, forget about our industry for a second, every company's dealing with the work from home, hybrid or remote work environments. So when you're talking with some of the members, what are you hearing from them as far as like, hey, we're coming back into the office 100%, we're doing hybrid or we're doing 100% remote. I'd be curious just to hear your, your take and kind of what you're, what you're seeing there. Well, it's been interesting. Uh, larger corporations have been slower to return to the office. And smaller, you know, more local companies or I'll say uh, privately held companies have returned to the office very rapidly. Uh, I think they're, they're operating as though uh, just like they were pre-pandemic. Uh, what's interesting about our industry, though, is a good part of the fulfillment team and even the business development team uh, are on the road a significant part of their time anyway, either auditing buildings, project managing, or talking with clients and business development. And so the office has become less important to those people. Certainly, they need a place to do some work, but some companies that already transition people towards home offices because of that nature. I do see this as this has pushed faster, but it, it, it's interesting. It, it seems as though you never can quite tell what that particular company's philosophy or culture will be and how often they want to see you in the office. I think there's still a perception of 
if I don't see you sometimes, I can't be sure that you're actually doing the work for me. And you know, there's a whole array of opinions about that. But uh, ESCOs, I would say, have been more progressive towards the home office simply because there, our work is more conducive to that. Certainly, the back office staff, the counties of worth, they're going to be they're going to be office based. But but our fulfillment, ESCO, technical, and salespeople are really on the road quite a bit anyway. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I was thinking about that too. You know, we did an episode just. Um few episodes ago, we talked about this this whole environment, working from home, and how if someone's at a point in their career where maybe they're looking to progress, they're looking to take the next step, they're looking to move into leadership, you know, sometimes if you're purely in a remote environment, that might limit your opportunities. Because oftentimes, that's where promotions happen. That's where career growth happens, is you're uh, collaborating with the team, your leader seeing you visibly every day, right? And I'm just wondering what the impact on that is going to be for the someone who's at the mid, oh, yeah. early to midpoint in their career, Normally they would have progressed, but now they've been working from home. You know, are those opportunities going to be limited for them now? I, I I can imagine getting started in any organization in a remote work environment has to be challenging. Uh, right. Certainly, certainly, there's the skills that one needs to complete the job task at hand. But but what we also know is that there are social and cultural skills you need to learn in an organization in order to be successful. Right. You need to understand. When I have a challenge, who is that person I go to who can get me the answers? You need to understand um, uh, the, the different emotional states that people are in, because certain times may not be the right time to go ask for a raise, uh, talk about a different idea that you may have for company growth. And, and not having those cues makes it more challenging to understand when is the right time to move forward, with those types of changes that you may see needed. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point because yeah, you got that category of of employees or team members, and then to your point, you got the the twenty year, twenty five year veteran that's a senior level account executive, business development, or project manager. They're like, hey, I can do my job from anywhere. Let me just roll with it. Let me just do my thing, yeah. right? So, um, so it's you, know, you know, Jim, one of the things I, I often am concerned about is is you know when when you, you hear surveys of what people are satisfied with. While salary is always kind of a lingering thing, it's often not the main driver that people have had to change jobs. And, and uh, often it's maybe a sense of camaraderie, the company benefits, just the sense of belonging or the family sense they have. And a lot of those get removed in a remote environment. And it makes me, makes me think that people might be more of, of a quick hop for salary because now all the others are, are no longer a factor in the decision-making process. Right, right. I think just like most things from this pandemic, we may not real know the real consequences until five, ten, fifteen years <laughs> yeah, later on really. down the road. You That's know, right. so uh, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. So speaking of that, you know, we're touching on some some potential challenges here in the marketplace. But when I first was communicating with um, a lot of folks in the industry, you know, last year or twenty twenty, um, there was a lot of challenges that these professionals were facing. I think about account executives that are accustomed to relationship type selling and being in front of customers. And that's really how they drove a lot of value. And now that has been removed, or at least at one point it was removed that, hey, they have a hard time building relationship over Zoom. So from your perspective, and maybe it's just talking with other members in the industry here, I mean, what other challenges are you seeing from from ESCOs right now, whether it's COVID related or just, just in general? Well, there's uh, there's a couple of them that's interesting. So one is uh, available subcontractors. I- ironically, in November of 2019, we as a NASCO organization, our board discussed 
our concern over finding contractors to fulfill our work. This was before the pandemic occurred. And so we then went through a pandemic. We had job losses, reductions, and consolidations. Now, at, now during and after the pandemic, we're finding that the, the problem is not just the same, it's worse. And so this problem that existed before the pandemic has gotten worse. And finding contractors to getting the work done, um, that's a real challenge. A second challenge is, is obviously, as everyone here is the supply chain, over and over again, the supply chain. But we have a unique challenge with that supply chain. Because of the supply chain issues, ESCOs have to propose a job to a client. And then once the ESCOs propose a job to the client, that client will often sit on it for maybe one, two, three, six months. Well, all the time because of supply chain issues now causing an inflationary pressure on those prices, by the time that client says yes, going back to the subs and the suppliers may not result in the same pricing. And so an ESCO now is challenged with how do they manage that price risk? Do they build in a cushion? Do they build in a contingency for that? Uh, how do they do that? Do they try to press downward on, on those suppliers to control the prices or do they let eat their margin? I mean, none of those are really an easy situation to live with. And so the supply chain is a unique problem for us because of the delays that occur in the decision-making process. And, and that's true, not just for ESCOs, but even our affiliates, which are those people that are between the ESCO and maybe the end product supplying that service as well. They're also stuck with the issue of now the ESCO wants to buy it. They want to maintain the ESCO relationship, but their price has gone up 10 or 15% since the original bid. And then the last problem that we're having is related to our own internal staffing of ESCOs and affiliates themselves, um, trying to get people into our industry. You know, I think if you were to go to colleges and, and talk to the engineering graduates that are nearing graduation and you ask them about what our industry was, most of them probably have never heard of energy savings companies or energy savings performance contracts and don't even know what the industry is. And, uh, and so I think we're challenged with the new people into the market aren't necessarily looking for us because they don't know of us. And then those that we have captured, I think, are being lured away to other markets. I had one member recently talk to me about how many of its, of its people that left went to other ESCOs versus actually left the industry. And I feel like once we lose somebody out of our industry, we're probably not going to get them back. It's going to be challenging. I just read a story, Amazon raised their salaries for people uh, significantly. And I can imagine that those are attractive to people that might be in our industry as well. And so I think from all sides, from those other industries that might pull our people away, to the new people coming in, not being aware of us, we really have a challenge ahead of us to keep our staffing levels where they're at. And we talk about those companies having some of the best years they've had. They're doing that with staff that supplied prior levels of performance, not these higher levels. And so staff are being stressed even more. Right, right. Yeah, who would have thought we'd be in competition with Amazon for talent yeah. in the market? But we are. So, we are. I know. We're we're seeing it, too. We're seeing it, too. And, yeah, some of the salaries that they put out there really are outrageous. And the only counters to that is that they expect a lot. They own you. They own you at that point. If you're going to accept a salary that's going to be, you know, one and a half or two X of what you're currently making, you know, it comes with some, some trade-offs there. It's probably uh, the only thing to look out for. So, um, all right, last question here. Let's just hover out for a second. Let's look at the industry as a whole. And if you were to put on um, – or look into your crystal ball, where do you see the industry heading over the next, let's just say five, 10 years? Well, there's, 
there's obviously a continued press for clean energy, and that's uh, in the form of renewable power. I think we're going to see our ESCOs be asked for far more renewable installations in their projects. I think they're going to have to include storage, and so uh, knowledge and experience with batteries will be important. I think uh, specialized grid technologies that allow them to have uh, more control over how the building connects to the grid, we call those microgrids, smart grids, whatever you want to call them. Uh, there's a big push that buildings can supply some services back to the grid through grid-enabled efficient buildings, and uh, they would be able to actually be able to react to load changes. And so I think control systems and communication will become far more critical in their interaction and working with others. Uh, but, but I also see ESCOs being asked to do more and more in the project. I think as, as some owners become comfortable with the, the contracting vehicle, they're asking ESCOs to do more than what they have historically done in the past, um, trying to branch out and do more things. Uh, that's related to this whole P3 movement, so, you know, the public-private partnership, where uh, owners are outsourcing some components of their facilities to third parties, and ESCOs are very much involved in that process. Got it. Well, Tim, I think that's a perfect way to uh, to wrap up the show here. So thanks a lot for the time. Thanks for being a guest again, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Jim. Have a great day. All right. All right, there you have it. Episode 63 with Timothy Unruh. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcasts. We hope you're sharing this with your friends and colleagues as well. And one last thing, if you have any guests in mind from the industry, please reach out to me. We'd love to hear from you loyal listeners. So until next time, I'm Jim Schaefer, and we'll catch you on the next episode.